Welcome to a Millennial's Guide to Real Estate Investing. Here is your host, Antoine Martel. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Real Estate Investing. Today I have Vina Jetty with me. She's founding partner at Enzo Multifamily and has 10 years of real estate investment experience. Uh, and her company currently oversees $250 million in real estate assets. So thanks for coming on the show today, Vina. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, so I like to start off the podcast kind of with your story and how you got into real estate, what made you want to get into real estate and real estate investing? Yeah, so I kind of took the easy road in, to be honest. Um, I come from a real estate family. So I had, you know, one foot in real estate investing since I was little. And so I kind of just thought it was what everybody did. I didn't know that this was only <laughs> something my family did. Um, so my parents started investing in real estate over 30 years ago. Um, this was back when they used to give you like stated income loans before wow. the big crash in mm-hmm. 07, 08. You could get 110% of your appraised value so you could have a redecoration budget in there. So wow. uh, definitely a different time. But um, my family, the way my parents kind of got started was when they found out how much in loans the banks were willing to give them, um, they were like, wait, do you add a zero to our income? Like what happened here? Why are you going to give us so much debt? Wow. Um, and then they ended up taking that. And instead of buying our primary home, that was like a larger home. What they did was they said, Hey, can we just buy like five or 10 homes with this? And they said, yeah, sure. We don't care. Um, so they <sighs> bought multiple single family homes and rented them all out, which, um, you know, they did really well in the downturn, especially they bought in a locations. Um, so I grew up around it and, I always, I I really thought that, you know, all of my friends, when, you know, their parents had closings, they would go to the closing and sign closing documents. Like, I just thought that's what everybody did. Or they'd go on, you know, on property walks and they'd go walk properties with contractors. So (laughs) I didn't know really, to be honest. And then, um, as I got older, you know, my parents started getting my sister and I a little bit more involved in the family business. Um, I'm the older one, so I had a lot more responsibility than my sister did. Got it. Um, so, you know, when my parents would leave, I'd take over management and it was really managing the managers by that point. But, um, took, you know, four years to go to college, did the college thing. And then I ended up in the commercial real estate world, uh, working for institutional companies uh, manage some large assets under institutional brands. And when I, the first year my husband and I were actually married and we paid taxes as a couple, I basically had a heart attack and said, there's got to be a better way. I know (laughs) that we can do this differently. Um, so that's when I made the decision to kind of get out of the corporate world out of the W2 and just make the leap into starting my own company um, so I started my own company and the tax advantages are much better now. Oh, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And then, so what did your, well, so when your family was, when you started taking over your family's business, did they still have single family homes or had they moved into multifamily at that point? Yeah. So it's funny. I actually never took over their 
portfolio. Um, my parents still, well, I should say they still recently owned their portfolio. So they were, um, in single family, they grew that quite large and successful. Both my parents retired early based off of the passive income from their single family portfolio. Yeah. And so, um, actually I start when I started doing multifamily more aggressively, they started divesting from the stock market and divesting from their single family assets and putting it more into multifamily. So they're now pretty heavily invested in multifamily. And I think as of maybe like two or three weeks ago, they sold their last single family asset. So now they're a hundred percent multifamily. Awesome. That's awesome. And then out of, and then out of college, did you go and apply for those real estate management jobs and is that how you landed one of them yeah. yeah I I mean I think I was just looking well okay so I'm like I'm on the old side of being millennial but they didn't have <laughs> like they didn't have all these things that they have now but I think I was like on indeed or monster was big at that time and so I was just applying and I was applying for jobs that I was like I'm not even sure I'm really qualified but let's just see what happens here and so um ended up getting one out of college moved to California was there for a little bit about a year and a half or so um and then ultimately before I left corporate America I was in DC um on K Street I had a large asset there oh wow Okay, cool. And then is that, and then how long did you work for those companies before you started to go out and do it yourself? Um, about five years total, um, between both of the companies. Um, I just basically, I needed to have enough experience. I felt like to be able to kind of have that confidence to make that leap of faith, but, uh, yeah, ended up, ended up working out in my favor. So (laughs) not complaining. Yeah. And so what were, what did those companies, can you explain what those companies do? Mm-hmm. You know, it says management of assets, but what does that actually mean for the listener? Yeah. So they were um, owned and managed by the company. So um, similar actually to what we do at Enzo, where we will acquire an asset and then we'll manage it. Um, we use third party professional management, but okay. in these instances we used in-house property management. Um, so to kind of give you a better example, my last job that I was referring to in DC, I was at Tishman Spire. So they own like, they own the Chrysler building and Rockefeller center when I was there. So they own massive, massive buildings. And so, um, they own and operated it. And then they also manage self-managed everything as well within the portfolio. Wow. Yeah. Big company. (laughs) And does your, does your company right now, you guys do third party? We do. Um, so this is like the million dollar question between the partners. So mm-hmm. I have one other founding partner, Sapan Talati. Um, and you know, I get along with him great, but this is the one thing <laughs> he really wants to bring management in house. And I think there's a lot of merit to it. And I think there's a lot of pros to it. I just personally dislike the management side. Um, yeah. I love our property managers. We have awesome third party managers that we use. Um, so for me, it's really tough to like bring that in house. Uh, so I think the eventual strategy is going to be to maybe acquire an existing Mm -hmm. management company or maybe partner up with an existing management company. But I do think he's right in the sense that eventually you do kind of want to bring that in house, that management in house in some capacity, but I don't, I don't see that happening for a long time if it happens at all. Yeah. Yeah. Cause for, for us too, I've been using a lot of 
you know, I have a turnkey business. So we sell turnkey mm-hmm. rental properties to investors who are looking for, mm-hmm. like your parents, cash flow from yeah. single family homes so they can retire and eventually upgrade to multifamily. But single yeah. family is way easier to get in, especially with the market right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do all third party property management. And I'm like, why would I ever bring this in house? It's like yeah. these property managers that I have are incredible. And mm-hmm. if I were to do any property management company, I would just hire these people who are, you know, I just buy this property management company. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That's exactly it. And I mean, that's the thing is our property management is, and I think too, my partner is seeing also that that he loves our property managers. So I just think it's going to be too tough to kind of get away from it. They're just so good at what they do. They have the infrastructure in place. They know the markets. So there's not really a huge incentive. I don't think for us to go in house. Yeah. Awesome. And then, so when you, when you left, you know, you were so you graduated college. You started working for these, you know, big, mm-hmm. huge commercial property managed or these huge real estate investment companies. You mm-hmm. worked there for five years, gained a ton of experience, and then you left to do it on your own. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of? How did you put together the funds in order to buy those properties when you went in? Was it just the connections you had built up over those five years that led you to it, or how did you go about financing those oh, deals once you sure. left? Yeah. So I actually started when I started my own company, I actually started in single family. Um, I didn't really know what people meant when they said like OPM, other people's money. Um, so when I initially went in, I actually followed a very similar pattern to what my parents had done before. So I went and I bought, I used my own funds and I put down 25% and bought a condo and renovated it and rented it out. And I mean, I still own it to this day and it still cash flows really well, but, um, I wish I had known then what I know now. Um, I probably would have structured things a little bit differently. So now for Enzo, um, the way we buy our multifamily properties is where we do what's called syndication. Um, so what that is for, especially any listeners that are just getting into real estate is, um, what we do is we pool together investor money and we bring investors together to collectively purchase um, a much larger asset. Um, so I'd like to think of it kind of like almost like a Groupon for real estate, right? Like the, <laughs> the collective buy, buying power is what matters. So yeah. while one person maybe can't buy a $15 million building, building well, 30 people or 50 people or a hundred people together, if they all put money in, can buy that $15 million building with, you know, with debt on it, same way that you would do a single family, um, rental. Got it. And then how are you, how are those investors paid? Are they given an equity of the deal or are they paid a interest rate or preferred or? Yeah. So, um, every syndicator will structure it differently and everything is, you know, project dependent, but typically the structure that we like to use is some kind of a pref or preferred payment, which in today's market, you'll see anywhere from like six to 8%, depending on the market, depending on the asset. Um, and then we'll do an equity split after that. So, um, 70, 30, 75, 25, 80, 20 is typically the range we see. Got it. Um, Yeah. So it's pretty straightforward in terms of the investor split. Got it. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was just curious because I've had mm-hmm. a couple of syndicators on here and everybody likes to do their thing differently. Um, but it's yeah. interesting just to collect that data from other syndicators too. 
Absolutely. So one of the things we found is our high net worth investors and individuals, they prefer the pref split and the blend, even though the return might not be as, you know, juicy or fruitful as having like an 80, 20 or 70, 30 split. Um, they like it because it protects them from downside, but it still allows them to share in the upside. So that's why they prefer that blend. Yeah. Can you explain what a preferred return is? Yeah. So, um, Basically, it's called like a preferred return because you get the first return. So the first six, seven, eight percent, whatever that pref is, um, the first six percent to eight percent of profit goes to the passive investors. So I don't take money out of that first six to eight percent. That goes straight to our LPs or our passive investors. Yep. And then after that is the equity split, which is the 70, 30 or 80, 20. So um, that split is where we is one of the ways that we as syndicators get paid out. Gotcha. Okay, great. Good explanation. Yeah, because the Absolutely. the investors get paid first before the yes. general partner gets paid. So it, you know, it, that's why she's saying it it's safer because the investors get their first money out without the syndicator actually making any money yet. Um, Correct. So, yeah, unless yeah, of course and- you guys have fees or whatever at the beginning or the, at the purchase or the sale, then there's other ways that the syndicator makes yep. fees as well. Yeah, and we do charge an acquisition fee um, just because there's so much work that goes into acquiring an asset. Um, I get this is the one fee I get pushback on often, Mm -hmm. um, but investors that are seasoned investors or high net worth investors, they know and understand that we might go eight months looking at 500 deals that we've said no to before we put this one in front of you. And so this acquisition fee kind of covers the overhead from those previous Yeah. Oh my God. But what I'll also say too is, um, especially in today's market, we're starting to see a lot of syndicators not charging acquisition fees or they're taking like 95.5 on their splits, like an, instead of an 80 20 or 70 30. And as uh-huh. a passive investor myself, what that tells me is the deal is not rich enough to do without yeah. having to cut down the syndicator side. So, yes, the GP should be the first one to have profits cut at you know the expense of protecting the lps but going into the deal if there's not enough money then that tells me if there's something wrong with the projection or the market doesn't perform the way we want it to you could end up with one of those moments that you're like oh no what are we gonna do now yeah exactly yeah that gets kind of scary when they're yeah when yes there is no fee and then the lp is getting all these all the profit share it's kind of yeah it's a risky set because when you <laughs> and you'll see it too when you're when you're underwriting because i i underwrite multifamily deals every week mm-hmm. and it's like well this deal could only work if the lp got 100 yeah. percent of the profit it's like well right. yeah, that deal shouldn't work then you know? yeah then it doesn't actually work and that's what <laughs> i always tell people i'm like look I know that we charge fees, but you want me to be able to charge fees because if I can't, it means that I am not doing the right deal. Yeah, so exactly. And also, I mean, if you're putting a hundred thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars or whatever that amount is, I mean, that's not a small amount of money. So mm-hmm. if you're putting a hundred thousand dollars into an investment, you want the person who's overseeing that investment to be making money and be incentivized to perform as best as possible yeah. on your asset. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, and have similar and aligned goals and aligned interests. Yeah, aligned interests. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So tell me. So you, 
went worked there for five years. You started your own thing, and then I didn't know that you started in actually doing single families. So how how long were you doing? Is that just because it was all yeah. you knew because of your, your that's kind of what your parents showed you? And then how long did it take? How did you scale up from you know that first single family into the multifamily side of things? Yeah, I mean, I started in single family because I didn't know any better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if I could go back and do everything all over again, um, I would have skipped straight to multifamily um, because, like you said, it's scalable. And mm-hmm. so that was really kind of the pain point that made me flip from single family to multifamily is I was doing this all by myself. And there was wow. a week where I bought like five houses in a week. And it is so much energy and effort. So when you don't have somebody who's creating turnkey opportunity and you're trying to create that yourself, <laughs> yeah, it's awful. It's a nightmare. So if I, I would have gone one of two routes, if I wasn't going to be an active investor and I was only going to be a passive investor, I would absolutely go the route. Like you said, passive mm-hmm. turnkey the investments a hundred percent every time. Yep. Um, if I was going to go straight to multifamily then I would passively invest in multifamily if I didn't want to be active. But because I'm active, um, I like the multifamily side because it's highly scalable. Um, It's not as volatile. And it is something obviously I understand really well at this point. So it's for me, um, like my personal portfolio, it's much easier for me to evaluate multifamily deals. Um, You know, you have less vacancy risk. So I like that. Um, So... Oh gosh, I totally lost track. Oh, why did I start in single family? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I started in single family because I just, I didn't know any better. And then the scalability became an issue for me where you can't, you can only have, I think it's nine or 10, 10 Fannie yeah. or Fre- 10, right? Yep. Fannie or Freddie loans. Um, so after that, I ha- I actually had to have a great relationship with a local bank here who did an awesome job really supporting me financially. Um, they were my partners in a lot of my deals. Um, but it, there's almost only so much you can scale and everything is recourse. Whereas a multifamily, you have non-recourse lending available to you. So I met my partner, Spontalati. Um, he had kind of been in the same boat as me. He was investing in single families. Um, it just, you know, there's only so many you can do and your profit is not nearly as high per strike as yeah. it is in multifamily. Yep. So, um, then we both kind of put our heads together and said, all right, let's, let's do this. And we kind of just ran off that cliff and I'm so glad I had a partner in the whole process. That's awesome. And then, so what you said you would recommend, you know, you would skip the whole single family side of things and going because you wanted to be active, right? So you would have Mm -hmm. skipped the whole single family side of things and gone right into multifamily. Um, how would you have done that differently you know, did you have enough cash saved up to where after working for all those years to, you know, and saving all that money to be able to buy that first multifamily? What do you think that would have, how would have that have gone down or how would you have liked that to go down? Yeah. Well, hindsight being 2020, mm-hmm. I would have just bought a lot more real estate right after 2007, 2008. Yeah, yeah uh, exactly. You know, I would have started upping my buying instead of, you know, not buying quite as much. And, um, so I did have enough cash saved to invest into multifamily. Um, the difference is, so there are ways to be in multi, just like single family, right? Like you can be in real estate without having a whole lot of capital up front 
um, to invest. Like you don't need a million dollars in cash to invest in multifamily. Um, you don't even need 50,000 to be honest. Um, what you can do. So same principles apply to multifamily that apply to single family. So, um, if you know how to underwrite and you can underwrite a deal and you can bring like a lot of syndicators like myself, if you bring me a deal that we successfully close on, we will pay an acquisition fee or, you know, whatever a finder's fee or whatever for yeah. the asset. So, you know, that can be a hundred or $200,000 just from a single pop, which in single family, you could be doing it for like 2000 or 20,000. There's a whole, <laughs> whole lot more range, yeah. but for us, because of the size of assets we look at, I mean, it, it's not unheard of us for us to offer, $100,000 for an asset that someone found or 200000 for an asset somebody found us where the numbers work, but they don't have the ability to purchase it. Yeah. 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 And that's something that I've actually been, I've been going to a lot of, I'm in Los Angeles and I mm-hmm. go to a ton of meetups over here. I go to like three a week. Um, and at those meetups too, I recently closed, I bought my first multifamily, actually closed on it, fully funded it today. Um, oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I know. It's pretty ironic, right? I was in, I know. I've, I've been in single family the last four years and I just bought my first 20 unit apartment building and Congrats. saved up, saved up the cash through those single family. I'm just following your parents' footsteps. There uh, you go. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let them know. Yeah. Yeah. Let them know. Tell them thank you. I'll send them a Christmas <laughs> But yeah, so we, you know, we've been doing that for four years, saved up enough cash and then we're like, okay, let's try this multifamily thing that everybody's mm-hmm. talking about. Um, and it took us six months to find the damn deal anyways. Um, but oh, that's, that's actually very good results. Cause this year we waited eight months before doing our first deal this oh, year. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was tough. Yeah. And that's the thing. Cause the single family side of things, there's a plethora of deal. I mean, I'm, yep. I'm doing five to 10 deals a month in the single family space. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's like, you know, people always say, Oh, I would have, you know, I like to do multifamily and I want to wait for multifamily, but then there's, you know, they wait two years to do their first multifamily deal because they have limited capital or don't know the right people and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, it's like, well, single family for those two years, you could have been making two grand a month if you just played the game. Right. Um, I totally agree. So it's very, you know, it's hard to to break into multifamily because there is such a lack of supply. The interest Mm -hmm. rates are going up. And then also a lot of the people who like are listening to this podcast are also in California where, you know, buying yeah, anything impossible. around here. Yeah, it's impossible. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So people have to go out of state, but then that's a whole different challenge, right? So, it is. So my partner, Sapan, he's actually based in Orange County. Okay. Um, previously Beverly Hills, and now he's in Orange County. But So he was investing in the DFW market in single-family homes when I – I'm actually in the Dallas market. So, um, that's actually how we ended up connecting is cause we were both investing into, in the same market and single family wanting to move to multifamily. Got it. Okay, cool. And then so, are you guys yeah. doing multifamily now in Dallas still? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So our two focused markets are really Texas and Florida, um, with a heavy emphasis on Dallas and Texas and yeah. then, um, Jacksonville, Orlando and Tampa MSAs. It's all kind of one big MSA in yeah. Florida. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Awesome. And then what are you, so you bought a deal recently, I guess. Mm-hmm. Did you just close on that in the last couple months then? Um, we closed that Jacksonville deal in end of August. Okay. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah. And then are, what, yes. tell me what kind of deals you guys look for. A lot of syndicators are looking for a lot of different things. And especially with the market being so yeah. expensive right now, a lot of people have 
in order to do business and stay in business, yeah. they <laughs> drop their returns and drop what they can pay investors. So what is what is your typical terms that you look for on, on deals today? Yeah, so that is, you know, ever changing also. Yeah. So, you know, 12 months ago, we were looking at totally different market fundamentals than even today. Uh, but typically, we look for 100 units minimum. Um, I say that, but really, it's like 200 units is kind of our sweet spot that we like. Got it. Um, and then we look for those solid B, maybe C plus assets in those really great locations. I mean, really, it's the same thing everybody looks for. Yeah. Uh, we just stick pretty strong to our fundamentals. So, um, you know, seventies, eighties vintage, um, with minimal deferred maintenance, or if there's deferred maintenance, that's fine. We just know about it going in. Um, we like to see a unit mix of, you know, more twos than one bedrooms in most of our markets because of the demographic. Um, and everything we're doing right now. So anybody who's in multifamily right now knows this, but everything is debt coverage constrained right now. So, Mm. You are, if you're finding a unicorn where you have a DSCR of like 1.6, 1.8, that is something is wrong in your numbers, (laughs) but it's not (laughs) happening right now. Um, So typically we're seeing everything being debt constrained. So what we're seeing a lot uh, happening a lot in terms of like a debt structure financing piece. Um, so we structure everything with agency debt. Um, the only way we'll go into like a bridge loan or is some kind of like bridge to perm position. Um, if there's like a destabilized asset that we're going into, but typically we're looking at stabilized assets. So we're looking at agency debt. So Fannie or Freddie debt, we're seeing a lot of investors who are going into stabilized assets with a, three one one structure. So like some kind of a bridge structure or private loan structure, um, which is concerning for us because the reason that they're doing it is to increase loan proceeds since everything's debt constrained right now. Yeah. Um, so you might get another like million or 2 million in loan proceeds cause you're leveraging up to 80% or 75 or 70%. Yeah. But that's a risk position that we see in this market because the market is softening. So mm-hmm. for example, that one that I just told you we closed in August, um, we leverage that at only 64%. Awesome. But I have an awesome debt note on it. And if I have to hold it, I don't think I will, but let's say I have to hold it for 10 more years. Yep. I can do that with no problems and no problem servicing the debt. Of course. Yeah. So my, very similar story to me. So we tried to get 80% LTV. They did the underwriting and they're like, nope. Nope. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then they had, they were like, the only way to get this deal done is if you do 65% LTV. And I said, yeah. okay, I believe in the deal and I don't care. It's just more cash flow to me then. Um, yeah. And my return actually increased, which is kind of weird because the interest rate went down. Yeah. Um, so it was actually and- even a better deal for us. Yeah. And then you're also like, if you're doing a bridge, then you're also adding in, you know, extra closing costs and then you're also buying down your cap. So that's going to cost something. And then you're still exposed to interest rate risk at the end of your five years or your three years or whatever that bridge period is. You're still exposed to interest rate risk because we don't know where interest rates are going to be. Yeah. I know where they're going to be. Higher. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, higher. (laughs) They're not going down, that's for sure. Right, and that's exactly it. And so in a rising interest rate environment, we want to be more conservative, which is where, you know, bringing extra or less leverage to the table and extra equity to the table makes a whole lot of sense. So, I mean, we're doing exactly what you did and buying it. I mean, it's painful, but it works. It's a strategy that's proven for us. Yeah, and then so what do you guys, for for that – 
loan that you guys just got in August. So ours was a 65% LTV, but it was a five-year arm. They didn't have any other option. So five-year mm-hmm. arm, but 30-year amortization. Mm-hmm. It was also a recourse because the building was only a million dollars. So that yeah. I couldn't do, you know, yeah. For the listener. Yeah. So if for what what Vina is getting is Freddie or Fannie mm-hmm. agency debt financing, and that loan needs to be over a million dollars. So if you're looking yes. at buildings that purchase price is a million or one and a half, then you're going to be unconventional now. So you can't go and get the agency Correct. debt. You have to go and get unconventional. So we actually use an asset-based lender and okay. went through that whole process just to get the deal done and to get our first you know, multifamily completed and uh, without going through the Fannie or Freddie. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think that makes sense because in order to qualify for non-recourse lending, you have to, you know, have a certain amount of experience and then they'll use your previous like P&Ls to kind of do a track record check on you. So um, it makes sense to get into, and like you said, smaller deals, you definitely have to typically use recourse lending depending on the size of the loan. So we're definitely doing larger loans. Um, We got, on that one, we had a 10-year term. Awesome. Uh, yeah, amortizing over 30 years, and I want to tell you the interest rate was like 4.34. Four, it was under 4.5 for sure. So, um, Wow, that's yeah. very good. So we paid 6.5%. But you're on an arm, that's why. You're not um, agency. I'm agency, that's why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were like, we do, agency does the 10-year treasury plus, I think it was like 144 bips on it. So... Uh, we just had to lock on the treasury whenever we thought was the right time, which was, Got it. I don't typically do the debt structuring side. My partner does, and he was out that week. And so I had to lock and man, <laughs> I was like sweating. I'm like, okay, we ready to on? lock? Should we lock? I know. I was like, you know, it's like so much pressure to decide <laughs> when to rate lock. Cause the next minute, of course it dips by like three bips and you're like, <gasps> I say just point zero three percent. There it goes thirty grand. Like right, exactly. <laughs> it's like so nerve wracking. <laughs> That's hilarious. But so, would you recommend? So for us, that was the only. I mean, I was looking for deals for six months or even longer. Then this deal came across my desk, and I was like, all right, if I want to get into the multifamily space, you know, of course, I would have rather gone you know done a bigger deal and put up more money. Yeah. But then I have to, you know, the normal investor or somebody in my shoes, you know, then I can't go and buy a $2 million building. I don't have $2 million of net worth. I don't have, you know, Mm -hmm. all these other things. So, you know, of course I would like to go and get non-recourse financing. That's the best thing where I pay, you know, two points literally less in interest. Um, Of course I would want to get that, but how does somebody, or what would your recommendations be for somebody who wants to break into multifamily? Um, Would you recommend what I did and, you know, going and finding maybe a smaller deal to build up your experience using asset-based lender or would you recommend, you know, just shooting for the stars and, or would you recommend just lending on a first deal? Because, yeah. Yeah. So my person, like, so at Enzo, we kind of use go big or go home as our motto. So, (laughs) um, you know, and we're all, we're all millennials, um, or just on the other side of being a millennial. So, um, we're pretty young. Um, and in that, in that way, you know, we like to take on a little bit more because we're still in that building phase of our lives, you know, like, my parents, for example, they're not going to go out and try to acquire a 250 
uh, unit building right now because they're just, they're retired. They're just chilling. They like life right now. (laughs) And so, um, it's a little bit different right there in the retirement stage. We're in the building stage. And so I personally think go big or go home is a great model to live by. Um, but there's many roads that lead to Rome. So I think that what you did is a very common entry point. And I think the bigger takeaway is like, you just have to get started somewhere, wherever that is. Um, and you know, the secret to getting around the $2 million net worth requirement is to find partners who will partner with you. And maybe you take less of the deal, but you can get the exposure you need or the requirements you need met by doing that. Um, so like we often will KP for other sponsors deals cause they can't meet the net worth requirement or the post close liquidity requirement. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So there, there's a lot of people out there that will, take care of this part. So if you're a good operator or you have a good business model, um, a lot of people are willing to help you out because somebody helped us out once too. Right. So it's just like a pay it forward mentality. We firmly believe that multifamily is a team sport. It's collaborative, not competitive. And so, I mean, we would definitely like that. Or remember how I said earlier, you could do kind of like the wholesaling thing with multifamily. If you acquire or you find a great asset that we pick up, we'll pay whatever that like acquisition or finder's fee is. Well, alternately, a a way you could structure it is let's say we had agreed, hey, I'm going to give you $100,000 for this $15 million um, building you found us. Once we close, you're going to be due that money. Well, what if you said, Hey, I want to leave my hundred thousand in there, but I want to, I want to sign on the loan alongside of you. Um, you know, it gives you, it adds to your credibility. Um, it allows you to be in, you know, the quote unquote country club. So Fannie and Freddie will now allow you to sign on non-recourse debt. Um, and we're adding the strength to the resume. So you're not qualifying us, but you're, you're kind of using your relationship with us as a way to kind of get into that country club and you're leaving money in the deal too. So you're something you're making more money off of it than oh, just yeah. that one time payout. Yeah. Um, so there's I a lot of it. creative ways you can structure these types of deals. You don't have to, I mean, another way mm. that, like you said, lending, right? A lot of, um, syndicators will borrow the hard money up front and they'll personally guarantee it. Um, so we don't do this at Enzo, but I know there's plenty of syndicators that have liquidity requirements that they can't necessarily meet. So yeah. you will them, you know, 50,000 or $100,000 at whatever interest rate, 10, 12%, um, and they'll personally guarantee it. And then they'll put that up as their pursuit costs. And then once they close, you'll get that money back or you can take a slice in the deal or if for, you know, whatever reason that money gets lost, it's personally guaranteed. So they'll pay it back to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, because for me, yeah, for me too, like networking was the biggest thing. Like for Mm -hmm. people who want to get into multifamily but don't know how to get started, just go to every damn multifamily networking (laughs) event in your area. I mean, even just me going to those events and saying, yeah, I live in Los Angeles and I I invest in Memphis and Cleveland, so I know those markets Mm -hmm. really well. But even if somebody just said, yeah, I'm looking into doing deals in Memphis and Cleveland and then a big syndicator mm-hmm. approached me because I said that. And he said, Hey, if you ever have a deal that's too big, just send it over to us. We'll underwrite exactly. it and we'll give you a finder fee. And I sent exactly. him the next day I sent him three deals and we almost placed an offer on one, but it was already under contract. So uh, you know, that happens. Yeah. <laughs> but it's about, you're right. It's about getting out there and there's a million different mm-hmm. ways to, it's not, maybe it's not going to be your own deal. The first one. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it isn't. Um, and hopefully yeah. you can just ride on the back of somebody else who's already had success and you can learn from mm-hmm. them. And yeah, you can take 
take the money and run, or I would recommend leave, like you said, leave the money in the deal and actually you yeah. know, be in the weekly meetings, just listening as a silent partner or wherever yeah. it may be. You could learn so much more through, through doing that. Um, and then you can do that five or six times and you're ready to take on a deal yourself for sure. Yeah. And also you can partner with other people that are kind of at the same place that you're at. Um, I've seen that a lot recently. I've been actually connecting a lot of new syndicators to each other um, because they're maybe not quite ready to partner on assets as large as we go after, but they maybe want to do like a 40 unit or a 50 unit together. So I'll put them in touch with each other. So maybe they're not doing one 40 unit, but now they're doing two 40 units because they have the strength of a partnership. So never underestimate good partners. Love it. Yeah, no, I like that a lot too. Because so, you know, different people bring different pieces to the table, right? So somebody yep. could have the the investors, somebody else could have the expertise of managing mm-hmm. the project. So uh, absolutely, yeah, everybody plays their own different role. Yep. Yeah, and it's really important to have partners you can trust. Like I have three partners, so I've been talking about my one co-founding partner, um, but I have two other partners. One is Neil Dandona. He does all of our operations and strategy, and I love him dearly for it because I hate the operational side. <laughs> so he does all of it. So I don't have to. And, uh, my partner's pond kind of sits behind him and kind of co-pilots that with him. And then my partner, Pooja Talati, she actually comes from, um, a marketing background. So she was at the Hershey company and oh, Hershey awesome. kiss was her brand. Yeah. So, um, she does all of our branding and our brand strategy and marketing. So it's a great diverse team so find a partner that has the strengths you don't and you guys will make a great team that's always my advice (laughs) yeah love it and then what kind of what kind of deals are you numbers in terms of numbers or returns are you guys looking at for your markets right now uh for our investors for your investors but also on like just the deal in general yeah so it's really tough to say because it's so deal dependent right now, but, (laughs) um, I would say on average, what our, our investors are seeing or can expect to see. So even 12 months ago, I would easily say, Oh yeah, two X over five years, not a problem on the equity multiple. Now I would think 1.7 is maybe more conservative. Um, we still are seeing some deals that are closer to two, um, so we're, you know, we're looking at, we like to see that 15, 16, 17% IRR mm-hmm. on the higher end and on the lower end, you know, that 12, 13%, maybe 11% if it's a very stable, like class yeah. A market. Yeah. Um, it's a risk adjusted return at the end of the day. Um, yeah. cap rates are definitely moving a little bit, um, in our markets, you know, we're seeing somewhere in the fives, um, you know, and I have a lot of investors that who are new to real estate that'll say, wait, but I'm getting, you know, a 10 cap in Boise, Idaho. And I'm like, well, <laughs> okay. Do you want to be in Boise, Idaho when the market downturns? Cause yeah. I can get a 10 cap in Boise, no problem. Yeah. But you know, in markets that are as strong as the fundamentals are in like Jacksonville, Orlando, DFW, Tampa, yeah. you really, you're not going to be finding a 10 cap unless you're looking in areas that you probably don't want to be caught holding yep. real estate in a downturn, unless that's your niche, which it's just not ours. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, even, even in my markets, if you're buying a 10 cap in Memphis and Cleveland, you're not in a neighborhood you want to be. Right. Um, you're in the wrong area. Yeah, you're in the wrong, <laughs> especially for multifamily. Single family is a little bit different because the prices yeah. are smaller. The returns are much smaller. But when you're buying a 
$2 million building and it's a 10 cap, I would start running. Um, yeah, agreed. <laughs> <laughs> because even, even for us, like we, the deal that was shown to us that I just bought today, mm-hmm. um, that was shown to us at a seven cap for Memphis. Right. So mm-hmm. it's, oh, that's actually great. Yeah. And then we, we ended up negotiating and got it down. We bought it like for 7.9 cap. So we got nice. it for a really good price. Um, but that, again, that took me a hundred deals to find one that even had yep. this kind of return. <laughs> so yeah, it's still, it's then it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years. And I guess I should ask you what, what are your thoughts on yeah. the whole multifamily side of things? You're obviously guys haven't stopped buying because of yeah. the way the market is just like me. So what mm-hmm. are you guys thinking of and how are you preparing if at all mm-hmm. for the softening? Yeah, so we don't stop buying because of the market conditions because we don't know when we're at the top or yeah. bottom of the market, right? Yeah. So what we do is we actually start shifting our fundamentals to become more conservative ahead of time. Got it. Um, so like I said before, we start getting more conservative on our leverage. So now instead of leveraging to 80%, we'll leverage to 70 or 65 or less if we have to. Um we start taking on much less aggressive debt terms. So okay. two years ago, three years ago, a bridge wouldn't have me thinking twice at all. Um, in today's market, there would have to be a very, very specific reason why we're taking on a bridge. And even then I'm not super convinced that we would do that. Um, yeah. you know, and I'll say this too, it really depends on your investor database. Also like our database is mostly, built of like physicians, dentists. So it's like people that are in those high cash flow, high net worth positions. They don't want to do anything active in real estate. They just want a tax shelter for their money. And so that's why they turn to passive real estate investments and they're repeat investors. So for them, they don't care about getting that extra like 1% on IRR if it means a bunch of added risk. They'd rather take 1% less if it means having a better debt product. True. and there are some investor databases that aren't like that. Like for me personally, as an investor, I might be a little bit more aggressive just because I have a little bit more of a risk tolerance and I'm willing to like see a little bit more what happens. If yeah. I think something has awesome potential, then I might throw a little bit of money into it to see how it happens. So it's just all about the individual risk. But um, we, so we do change our criteria though. Um, we don't underwrite to, okay, so the first thing we do whenever we get like, the broker's income projections and pro forma is yep. we throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> so we do everything from scratch. And when I say we, I'm talking about my partner, Sapan. He's like our financial genius. Okay. Um, it's funny because we were talking about him being like an underwriting god this morning because he's really great <laughs> with underwriting. And so uh, he'll re-underwrite everything and then it'll go through multiple iterations before we get to yeah. our best and final offer. But Um, we'll start doing things like, um, for example, if we know we can get valet trash and we know it'll net us $8 a unit, um, we won't underwrite for that or we'll underwrite with like a $3 net on it. Um, we won't underwrite for reserved parking. And then if we get it great, it's just added. So everything on our pro forma gets much more conservative. We've increased our interest reserves, um, so, you know, usually you'd use 250 in the last like year or two. Now we're using three or even 310, 320. Um, and we're stress testing everything yeah, way more. Yeah. So we're seeing where, where our numbers are with a vacancy of 
we're we're stress testing everything Um, and then we're doing sensitivity analysis too so um, you know the typical rule or I don't know what you use for yours but what we use as kind of the rule of thumb for cap rates is we add a tenth of a point per year of planned hold right so um, in our market so this is market specific again it's not markets that you can see those higher caps but these are markets with like great fundamentals so dfw uh jacksonville orlando tampa are the four that i'm talking about specifically um and so in those markets we'll use you know a tenth of a point so we plan typically on a five-year hold so we'll do you know a half a point on the cap rate and then um we'll add another like 20 basis points or maybe in a, another half a point. And then we'll do a sensitivity analysis as well yeah. to kind of see how that changes as we shift our vacancy and or our cap rates. Got it. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. For me, you're right. It's very deal dependent, right? Because this, mm-hmm. this deal that I bought was in like on the fringe of a, like a medical district and also on the fringe of like, a really up and coming hipster neighborhood. So in five years, it was like, you know, I don't think this neighborhood's going to go down anymore. It's between two, there's the new developments happening all over my building and stuff. So I put my going in cap rate was again around an eight cap. And I put my exit cap rate at an eight cap as well. I just left it as the same. um, Yeah. So that's actually another school of thought that, so we underwrite too with entry and exit being the same as well. Um, just to see what that looks like. Cause you want to do like an apples to apples comparison yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Look, if you're in like a really hot area that, you know, the cap isn't really going to slide much. I mean, chances are you're probably going to be fine. Even if it goes up <laughs> by like 10 basis points, yeah. it doesn't really change your number that much. Yeah. Um, and I think you also bought it really well because I mean, we're not in an eight cap in Memphis market right now. I mean, that's an awesome going in cap. Yeah. Um, And also your operating cap is going to matter too. So if there's so many cap rates and I think that cap rates are much more complex than people look at them when they're initially like getting into this space, they're like, Oh, what's the cap rate? And it's like, well, there's more to it than just the cap rate. Right? You want your, you want the seller's cap. You want the buyer's cap. You yeah. want your entry cap. You'll look at the broker's cap. You'll look at your operating cap. So there's a lot of cap rates that should be taken into account. So absolutely, we add half a point just to make sure that we have enough wiggle room. Yep. I also think that cap rates are going to remain mostly flat in those strong markets. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with you. Yeah, and then so. I, yeah, and I think the tertiary markets will see them, because the other thing yep. too that we have is the interest rates, which can yes. affect the cap rates <laughs> a whole lot because yep. you know as that thing keeps going up, so will the caps, and mm-hmm. it's going to be a very interesting thing to watch. Yeah, well, and you also have inflation kind of offsetting that as well. So it's actually funny because my partners and I were just talking about this this morning. So there's, I mean, it's just, it's kind of an unknown. So if someone's new to underwriting, what I suggest is go in, do a sensitivity analysis and look at it. If you're buying at like a six cap, look at what happens if you ha- if you exit at six one, six two, six three, six yeah. four, six five, all the way up to like seven just to see what happens. And if you feel comfortable with that, exactly move ahead. Yeah. And are you still happy with this return? You know, if this were to happen, are you okay with taking this return? Right. So we do, we do the same exact thing too, where we were like, okay, if we don't increase, we were, cause this one's a huge value. Like the rents are 580, 550 a unit. They Mm -hmm. should be 700, 750. 
I know. That you can get a home run on that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then, you know, I'm looking at comps and they're down the street. The building was just renovated. We're going to do the same exact paint, the same exact everything. Just nice. I'm just going to match the building and match the unit and yep. get the same rent, which is 750 and actually 800, but I'm being conservative. Yeah, um, be conservative. <laughs> and then, you know, and I we were we were buying the building like, okay, let's say we increase the rents to 600 from 550, you know, are are we mm-hmm. still going to be happy with the return? And we're like, yeah, we're still happy with the return. So then it's like okay, now I know that I bought it for a really good price, even if the market yeah. crashes and I can't get that high rent, even though that's what the market is. You yeah. Know, can I still, you know, am I still happy with the return? Maintain. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how you have to look at it. So you always want to under promise and over deliver. And yeah. so by doing things like, like we don't add any additional income before we adjust expenses up. And we, that's the first iteration of underwriting we look at. Yeah. Um, and then we start looking at, okay, if we put $5,000 a door in renovation, can we get, you know, $150 a door? If yes, okay, let's just apply $75 in rental increase and see what that looks like. So a lot of times, um, what'll happen is like our one that we've been talking about, um, we didn't put any money into some of our turns and just the typical make ready, right? Like paint and clean. Um, and we ended up getting the rent bump assumption that we had on a fully renovated unit without even putting that money in. So all upside, you want to, Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, those are always nice surprises to have. Um, you know, we've been deleasing pretty vigorously on that one to get some of the bad debt off the books, um, and releasing at better leasing terms, um, no concessions on there. Um, so, you know, it's, it's turning out to be much better than we anticipated going in, but, um, you know, that'll happen. You should have these pleasant surprises if you go in with conservative underwriting. Absolutely. Yeah. I always, I'd rather underwrite for a, you know, a 12% return and be pleasantly surprised with 18 when it happens. Yep. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Vina. Uh, it was really nice Absolutely. to have you. Is there any way that people can get in touch if they have to reach out to you or would like to reach out to you? Um, and maybe want to learn more about what you guys are doing at Enzo. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, if anybody wants to reach out, um, if you have questions or you need help with your underwriting or anything like that, um, you can visit us at Enzo Multifamily. That's E, N like Nancy, Z like Zebra, O like Octopus, multifamily.com. Um, and you'll find all of my partners on there and kind of a portfolio of what we do. And there'll be a contact form on there. So you can just schedule a call with us and um, we'll reach out and get you on our calendar. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on again and sharing everything you've learned over the past 10 years. And uh, yeah, I think people will definitely take a lot away from what we spoke about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thanks for coming. All right. Take care. Bye.